right, if you could turn to John chapter 6. I will say up front, I will give you fair warning that, uh, one, this passage includes some hard sayings as well as some deep theology. So hang in there. Uh, I'll try to make the theology not boring. Uh, I know some people love theology. Some people don't love theology. (laughs) So, but we've got theology today, like it or not. John 6, 41 through 51. Hear the word of our God. So, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of God. Sorry, the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that came that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God endures forever. And may it be the Word of God that we remember this morning, that we might hold the living Word, Jesus, in high esteem, growing in our delight in Him. Grant us a hunger for that which endures, lessening our desire for that which withers, fades, perishes. In the name of Jesus, the enduring and eternal word who became flesh for us and for our salvation, we ask this. Amen. Two books that come to my mind. Both of these books, when they initially were released, were very popular within certain portions of society. Both of these books were presented as memoirs, as autobiographical. The first was by a Christian comedian named Mike Warnke. His book, The Satan Seller, told the story about uh, how he, supposedly, as a satanic high priest, ends up being found by Jesus and coming out of satanic worship. Second is a book by, name, by a guy named Jim Fry. I want to make sure I get the title right, because I've never read it. A Million Little Pieces was presented as a memoir of his life, uh, particularly in rehab. Tells the story of how he came out of addiction, and it supposedly follows something similar to the 12 steps. 
Mike Warnke was very popular among Christians. Well, Jim Fry was very popular among the Oprah crowd. In fact, his was the September 2005, I believe. Yep, 2005, Oprah's Book Club Selection. And that made it a bestseller. Well, years after being written, Mike Warnke's story was exposed by Cornerstone Magazine as being fraudulent. They had gone back and done all of their research and presented an expose that revealed Mike for what he really was as opposed to what he claimed to be. In the case of Jim Fry, the smoking gun went back and found out that much of what he presented in that book was false, that people he talked about didn't exist. People can sometimes make great claims, but just because you make a claim doesn't mean that it stands up to the test of truth. Jesus is making some great claims here. Will they stand to the test of truth? You know where I'm going. The answer is yes. But still, our big idea this morning is that the Father draws people to come to Christ for eternal life. And I want to start really on the negative note of all of this, which is where our text begins. And that is that unbelief arrogantly sees only part of the picture. And what I didn't write there is thinks it's the whole picture. Arrogance gets us into a lot of trouble, doesn't it? Jesus, as I mentioned, made some very bold claims about himself in the presence of these people. He declared, among other things, that he had come down from heaven, that he was the son of the Father, the unique son of the Father. No Jew in that day would call himself, or call God his own personal father, but the father of the nation. Jesus was making bold claims. He claims here in this very text that he is the the bread of life, the one that gives eternal life. And so, The response of the people who sought out Jesus for more food is, the Jews grumbled. It's reminiscent to what we've looked at before in Exodus 16 and Numbers 11, where the nation of Israel was grumbling against God because God wasn't doing what they expected him to do. To grumble or to murmur depending on your translation, has that idea of that low talking amongst yourselves against somebody else. And so it's not someone standing up in the midst of the congregation and going, I don't believe you. What it is is you going to your spouse or someone else. Can you believe what this guy just said? This is so stupid. That's what's going on. The people who are around Jesus, and we'll find out later, this is most likely in the synagogue, okay, they're kind of leaning over to one another. Do you believe the chutzpah of this guy? What he's saying about himself? Do you understand? Is he crazy? So it's that kind of thing. But Jesus is going to recognize what's going on because he knows what's in the heart of man, as we saw from the end of chapter 2 in this gospel. They were grumbling. They were not really addressing to Jesus. And part of what they said is, that Jesus, whose father and mother we know. Okay? At some point, Jesus' family moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is where he is now. 
And so his father had probably passed away since that point in time, but they knew him. They knew Joseph the carpenter. They knew his name right there in the text. They know his mother. How can this be true? How can he be calling uh, himself the son of the father? How is it he can claim that he has come down from heaven? We know precisely where he came from. Nazareth. (coughs) Bad place. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, as Nathaniel himself had said. Okay? They had some information. They didn't have all the information. And I'll tell you this. In 2,000 years, nothing has changed. People still jump to conclusions. The latest jumping to conclusions this week was the Ray Rice domestic violence incident, but more, not necessarily that, but what did Roger Goodell know and when did he know? It sounds like Watergate, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, for those of you who are old enough to remember these things, um, or Benghazi for those of you who are younger, um, what did he know and when did he know it? And there are many who are on talk radio and, and the press and everything, jumping to conclusions that Roger Goodell knew certain things and therefore he should lose his job. It's the same thing. It's the same spirit. It's the arrogance that thinks we, we, because we know something, we know everything we need to know in order to make a decision about someone else's life. They have some information. They think they have enough information, but they don't. They are disputing particularly Jesus' heavenly origin with assertions. Not questions. That's the key thing right there. They're making arrogant assertions. They're not asking questions. There is a place in the Christian life for us to ask questions. Because, you know, even from this text, there are many difficult things that are in Scripture. There are things that are hard for us to understand. And so it's okay for us to ask questions about this. How can this be so with the, with the, a posture of humility and teachability, but these people weren't teachable. They weren't seeking the truth. They thought they already had all the truth and were refusing to receive the truth. And so there's a difference here that takes place. Reminds me of a third book written by a guy named Bart Ehrman. He's a professor of religion at the University of North Carolina. He's a Tar Heel. I doubt he plays basketball, but maybe he does. I don't know. But he recently wrote a book, How Jesus Became God. And at one point, uh, Dr. Ehrman was a Christian. And at one point, he would have affirmed what we affirm. But something happened in his life. I don't know what happened in his life. But he began to doubt and to question, and I would say probably an unhealthy way as opposed to a healthy way. Okay? And so the the whole position of this book, the thesis of this book is that Jesus was an ordinary man. Jesus was an apocalyptic preacher. He was preaching about the end of the world. And the Romans, not liking some of what he said, had him put to death. And then this crazy thing happened. His disciples went nuts, (laughs) thought they saw visions of Jesus, that he had come back from the dead. And so what they did is they then began to systematically teach that Jesus was God. 
Okay? Note. His premise. Obviously, Jesus was an ordinary man. Jesus was not God, from his perspective. But that the fact that he was God was something that his disciples made up under some delusion and began to teach. And what he doesn't say is, even though it put him on a cross, all of them but John died as martyrs. Okay? How many of you are willing to die for something you know is a lie? You know it's a lie. So this is, this is his theory. This is what he puts forward. Let's think about this for a moment. Let's think about the claim of these grumbling Jews. His father and mother we know. Go ask her. If you want to verify what Jesus has said about his origin, you could walk down the street if you were those individuals. You could walk down the street, knock on the door, say, Mary, your son is down there talking all kinds of crazy junk about coming down from heaven. What's the story? You could ask. They could verify this. She told Luke what really happened when he asked her. This is verifiable for them. Okay? And so we have the testimony from them. They would say they didn't make this up. They got it from Mary. And it's consistent with the Old Testament scriptures. So that's part of how we evaluate some of these things. Bart Ehrman thinks essentially that John made up this entire discourse. That if you were, you know, if there was a time machine... And you went back to Capernaum three days later, or after the, res- the, the resurrection of Jesus. If you went back to Capernaum, you wouldn't be able to find anybody who was there who heard this discussion and who would say this. But I, you know what? I think if this really took place, people would remember it. Yeah, Jesus, he's kind of crazy. Thinks he came down from heaven. You would find people there that would verify that this discourse took place. They just didn't believe what he said. But they would believe and know he said it. So, we can't go back. But we do hold to the incarnation, which is really what this is about. That as it says at the beginning of John, the word was God... I'm sorry, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. John 1.14. This really hits that. And so on the basis of John chapter 1, as well as, you know, the first couple chapters of Matthew and Luke, and, well, Ephesians 2, which we've already mentioned, Uh, in our worship service. We hold to the reality of the incarnation. We believe that it is based on revelation, but we also believe it's based on resurrection. And the last, while while we can't verify the incarnation except for the words of Mary, we can verify the resurrection because not only did a few people in a room claim they saw Jesus, but Paul claims that he appeared to over 500 at one time in 1 Corinthians 15. So there were people, I mean, that's one grand delusion. (laughs) You know, 
there are many people, hundreds of people, who could have testified to seeing the resurrected Christ. Verifiability. Can Bart Ehrman verify his accounts? No. He's just making arrogant assertions about something that he can't prove. You can believe him if you want, but you can't prove he's right. All right, enough of that stuff. But unbelief, this is, I mean, this is really kind of what unbelief does. It arrogantly makes demands of the faith while simultaneously resisting the faith's demands, if you catch what I'm saying. It demands all kinds of proof, but it resists the call to come, to believe, to eat, to partake. So... That's what unbelief does. Now, as I said, there are hard things in the Scriptures, things that we can struggle with believing. And R.C. Sproul has expressed some wisdom when he said, I realize that when there's something in the Word of God that I don't like, the problem is not with the Word of God. It's with me. We can expand this. If there's something that we're, we're finding hard to believe, hard to understand, we can ask a question, am I understanding this correctly? Am I interpreting this passage correctly? Because there are things that, that you know, people have believed in the past that were wrong because they were not understanding the text correctly. So that's always a possibility. I'm not understanding the, the text correctly. The other possibility, which is the one he focuses on, is, you know, it rubs me the wrong way. It's just that I don't like it. And what I like and don't like is not really a great measure of truth. Not at all. It's okay to ask questions with hard doctrine. It's okay to raise some of these questions and seek greater understanding. That's okay. Because I believe the truth stands up to the scrutiny which we place upon it. So, in light of such stubborn unbelief, how is it that anyone believes? Our second point. The Father draws those given by teaching them. Jesus calls them to listen instead of their grumbling, because grumbling hearts are not teachable hearts. In a sense, he's calling them to repent of their grumbling, of their arrogance, and to listen. They didn't come to him, which as we saw last week, it is in parallel with that statement of believing. And so they did not come in faith to him. And Jesus makes one of these bold statements. No one can come to me. No one. An absolute negative proposition. No one is excluded from this proposition. All people, without exception, lack the ability or the power to come to Christ, to believe in Christ. This word that we find that um, can, that word dynamis, which has to do with power, 
ability. You know, I almost want to do Jimmy Walker. Dynamite. Right? Okay? That's what it's talking about. That people, because of Adam's sin, are in a state which Paul describes in Ephesians 2, that they are dead in sins and trespasses, such that uh, though the gospel is clearly presented to them, they don't understand it. They don't like it. They don't believe it. We see this as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're talking about the, their eyes are veiled, that the, 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 the prince of this world blinds them to the truth. Everybody, without exception, who is outside of Jesus Christ is in that position, is in that condition. Theologically, we call that total or radical depravity. But there is no one in their own power who is able to come in faith to Jesus Christ. And so people are gospel-resistant. Our, our uh, contractor, he's not here today. Hopefully he won't listen. <laughs> but he talks a lot about his integrity. That's what he's stuck on, the illusion of his integrity. He's resistant to the gospel. He's resistant to the reality that he needs help from above. And may God change that. So, this idea of radical depravity is here in the text. And Jesus continues this statement. Okay, no one can come to me unless. Now he provides the condition. There are certain people to whom this doesn't, you know, they, they come. But they come because of this reason that he's about to give. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus has, still has mission on his mind. Because it's not just the Father, it's the Father who sent me. Okay? The same Father who sent is going to be the Father who draws sinners. He sends his Son into the world to die for sinners. He's going to draw sinners to believe in the Son. This drawing leads to belief in Jesus' words here. This word drawing is an interesting word. It's interesting how different people, based on their theological presuppositions, treat this word. Okay, We all bring presuppositions to every text of the Bible. All of us do that. None of us are innocent of doing that. Okay? Acts 21, for instance. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And so in Acts 21, what we see is Paul was dragged or drawn out of the temple. That's a very forceful word that is being used. Sometimes we 
because of their theological presuppositions about people, some people soften this word draw to like almost like woo. And for some reason, my mind goes to Bugs Bunny, dressed as a lady Tasmanian devil. Yoo-hoo! Okay? I really can't, I haven't seen that in a while, but that's still in my brain from my youth. One day my children will be indoctrinated. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and R.C. notes that uh, in, in, he was in a debate with uh, a brother who was an Arminian. Okay? That's key. Okay. It was a brother. Okay? Still a Christian. And this gentleman brought up a text from outside of the Bible in which this word is used, in which this word talked about drawing water, and he sees, see, it's not what you think it is. It's not to compel. And R.C. and his chance goes, that's interesting that you bring up that particular text because actually it proves my point. Who looks down into a well and says, oh, water, please come into my bucket. No, you must throw the bucket down into the well let it fill with water, and then you draw it up. You pull it up. You drag it up. And so the idea uh, that Jesus is presenting is this idea that we theologically call irresistible grace. That not this idea that God enlightens everybody and some of them come, but that God enlightens those that he has given to the Son, which we talked about last week. It's connected with this idea in the text of unconditional election. The Father appoints, gives them to the Son, draws them to the Son because they will never come on their own because of their own predisposition towards sin. Jesus explains this even further. He talks about the prophets. Let's see, where was that? It is written in the prophets. He's general there. Okay? We, we see this idea taught in what we read from Jeremiah 31 earlier, but it's also probably most closely associated to Isaiah 54, verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And so it's not the idea of like me standing up and teaching you kind of uh, publicly and generally but the idea seems to be personally in the inmost chamber. As it talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, God shining his light into the heart of an individual, removing the veil that they might finally see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. This kind of teaching... All those that the Father teaches in this particular way will come to Jesus in faith. And Jesus then makes another statement, another claim, which is a repetition of what he has said in other places in this very discourse, and I will raise him up. From regeneration all the way to resurrection, salvation is the work of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus makes another claim. He makes this this bold claim that no one has seen the Father except the one whom the Father has sent, him. He has seen the Father. He's the only one, aside from the angels, and they're questionable. 
Because whenever we see the angels, like in Isaiah 6, what are they doing with, with one other set of wings? Covering their eyes. They're in the presence of the Father, but they never see the Father. And Jesus says, essentially, I have seen the Father. I'm the only one who has seen the Father. There is no other. Now, let's talk for a second about some other faiths. Okay? With bold claims. Joseph Smith, in upstate New York, claimed that the angel Moroni appeared to him and gave him these tablets with the secret translation uh, thingamahoozy. You know, the, like the little key codes from, uh, you used to get over the radio when you were kids, uh, when some of you were kids. Okay? So he was able to translate this thing, which was in a language that was, uh, you know, not known by any human being. So he alone was able to translate this, and that's the Book of Mormon, so he believes. Mohammed claims that he received in a vision the Book of the Quran, that he had visions of God. Okay? Is Jesus' claim... The same as the other two claims? Again, let's get back to verifiability. Okay? Because both Joseph Smith and Muhammad claim that the Bible is a holy book. They claim. That's what they believe. Are they consistent with what the Bible teaches? And the answer on both counts, I believe, would be no. They're not. Whereas Jesus' statements are consistent with what we find in the, New Te- sorry, the Old Testament. So his claim, I think, is of a different order. Though it's not verifiable in terms of no one saw him see the Father, just as no one saw Muhammad in the cave and no one saw Joseph Smith when he found these things, which apparently have disappeared. They don't exist anymore. Okay, They got taken away. There goes verifiability. Jesus spoke according to the book. Muhammad and Joseph Smith didn't speak according to the book. And so like the Bereans, our faith is not blind. We need to make sure that what we're hearing is consistent with the rest of the book. And when you think about it, if all of this is some craziness, the New Testament is just some craziness that the apostles made up, man... Were they brilliant? I mean, these fishermen and taxmen must have had like secret PhDs or something because it's amazingly consistent. They knew the Old Testament. They really knew the Old Testament and they really knew how to apply the Old Testament. The only one who we would say is capable of this would be Saul, otherwise known as Paul. But all the rest, John... He was slumming as a fisherman, apparently. Okay, how great this delusion was. But we see that Jesus fulfills these Old Testament promises in a profound way. And so those that do come, come precisely because the Father has drawn them, instructing them in their heart, regenerating them. Thirdly, we see that Jesus is the living bread that you must eat. 
he'll live forever. Okay, all of that other stuff is, is nice theology, but here comes the bottom line. You need to eat of him. You need to come to him. You need to believe in him. This is the third truly, truly of this discourse, and there's more to come, don't worry. Whoever believes has eternal life. God's grace is appropriated by faith, not by works, entrusting yourself to him, otherwise known as coming to him. Jesus repeats, I am the bread of life. He's continuing this contrast with the manna that they received in the Old Testament during the, the wilderness years. They ate it, and they died. Despite eating the manna, he says, they died. Now, some people think, well, he's speaking merely of physical death, to which it would be, you know, yes, it did not uh, prolong each, uh, uh, earthly life very long. But when you look at the parallel, what it's, what it's in parallel with in this text, as well as when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's not just that they got old. Jack, don't listen to me. They got old and died. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the judgment of God. He's talking about condemnation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They all ate the same spiritual food. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Judgment. Is contrasted with eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. I mean, that's this context that we're looking at here that is so important. So those who feast on him will live forever. The idea is not that, you know, Peter should still be hanging around here. You know, we could call him up on the phone. Hey, Apostle Peter, how's it going? What was it like when? That's not the idea. It's not the idea of prolonged earthly life, but the idea of eternal life. He lives in the presence of God now and will forever. That's the idea. Not only is Jesus the bread of life, but he says that he is the living bread living bread. He has life in himself and he gives life. I, I watched, some of you who are on Facebook know I watched this thing about eating Asian foods. And there was one that particularly grossed everybody out because it was freshly cut up octopus. And it was still kind of, you know, on the plate. <laughs> Moving on the plate. None of us likes the idea of living food. Okay? Oysters. I love clams. I'll eat steamed clams and fried clams all day long. Throw an oyster in front of me. Ain't gonna happen, okay? That's alive, man. I don't eat live stuff. I want my stuff dead, okay? But Jesus invites us to eat of him who is the living bread, okay? And again, eating here is in parallel with faith. And so what part of what Jesus wants us to understand is that faith is like eating. And some of you may go, huh? And that's okay. That's why I'm here. When we eat, what happens? Well, first off, there's something that's outside of us. Let's imagine it's something really good. Oh, the ugly steaks. We'll bring back the ugly steaks. Okay? So there's this cooked ugly steak. And it's on your plate. It's outside of you. And now you're going to take pieces of it at a time 
cut it, stick it in your mouth, and chew it. And it becomes inside of you. But it's not just that it's inside of you. Your body breaks it down and appropriates the, the vitamins and the minerals and the proteins that are in the food that you are eating so they, they become a part of you. You know, the sugars are burned off so you make energy. We talked about this with the, with the kids in their physics class, you know, uh, this past week. And the proteins are, you know, building up muscles and I don't apparently eat enough protein. Um, so all of the stuff that's in the food that's important and necessary becomes a part of your body. Now the idea of faith is, is that Christ is outside us. But by faith, we become joined to him. And so all of the resources of Christ, like the vitamins, the minerals, the proteins, and all that stuff, the sugars, all that we need to survive, so to speak, spiritually, all that is his becomes ours. And we're able to draw on those resources, not just for spiritual life, but for spiritual health and spiritual growth. Okay, so that's the idea that, that, that faith is like eating. By eating, something outside of us gives us life. By faith, he who is outside of us gives us eternal life. Jesus says that he gives his body, sorry, his flesh, not his body. There's two different words there. Okay, The flesh, even, in, even his weakness, he gives himself for the life of the world. And again, presuppositions matter when we look at the context that this is in. And I, the context I see it in is that from that begins in Genesis 12, when the promise is given to Abraham, and the promise says, I will bless those who bless you. To him who dishonors you, I will curse. And here's the key thing I want you to remember. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a promise there in Genesis 12 of the blessing to the nations found through the seed of Abraham. And basically this comes to fruition in the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And Jesus then sends his disciples out just as he was sent to the world. Now he sends his disciples to the world. But you will receive power, he says in Acts 1, when, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's not just for Israel. It was never intended to be. That's the idea. It's not the idea of every single individual person who has ever lived and will ever live, but the idea of it's not just for Israel, which is one of the big themes in John's Gospel. Revelation, chapter 5, same thing. You purchase not all nations, but people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. Okay? So, Jesus brings the promise given to Abraham to fruition in salvation for all peoples, all tribes, all nations. And that's why people like Joan go to these strange places that we don't understand and live, uh, you know, in very different conditions, learning a brand new language because God has some people there. Maybe not as many as Joan wants, but God has people there. And in fulfillment of Acts 1, Joan and Grace and others were sent to that place to make Jesus known, to be his witnesses. Same thing, Ukraine? I forget. Where are you missionaries to? Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. I knew it was a U in there somewhere. Okay. Missionaries to Uzbekistan. Okay. So, 
Jesus sends them out so that he might bring in those he's chosen. Now, while these people in front of Jesus wouldn't come, Jesus knows that the Father has given him many who will come. And this ties in with Romans 10. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, it almost seems like all roads lead back to Isaiah, doesn't it? It's a good thing we're studying that. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And there's Jesus right here in John 6, holding out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people, and all they do is grumble instead of come. But there are some who never knew God, who never sought God, but he finds them. Glorious news. So the Bible contains many statements that are difficult to understand and difficult to believe, and many of those statements are about who Jesus is and the realities of our salvation. Now, everyone approaches the Bible with presuppositions. Sometimes, on the basis of presuppositions, people rule out the the clear teaching of Scripture. But if we accept the Bible's presuppositions, that God can become man, okay, I think we'll find that its statements are more consistent and coherent of a worldview than the worldview of of the Bible's critics. We will also discover a God who is mighty to save, who overcomes our sin and our presuppositions to produce saving faith. We discover a Jesus that we need like bread to keep us, but who's also powerful enough to raise us up on the last day. And so bring him your doubts, bring him your fears, bring him your sin, and see what Christ will do. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we sometimes limit you. We try to put you in theological boxes to limit your power, to limit your authority, to limit your providence, to exalt ourselves. And as Spurgeon has said, what we see here humbles us because we see how needy how weak, how helpless, how we were enemies. And yet you saved us. So we thank you that you are such an amazing Savior, such an incredible God. And help the knowledge and experience of your grace and goodness to sink deep in our hearts. Because we are confronted every day with, with our sin and sin in the world and all the misery, and it begins to dominate our vision. And we need to see Jesus. We need to be reminded every day of his strength, his power, his goodness, his kindness towards people like us. So that we are people of hope, not people of despair. 
We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.